Thank you, Bob. You know, we all have longings at Christmas. We all long for the perfect Christmas. That time when we want everything to be just right and end up perfect. We want the Hallmark movie Christmas. Now, don't get me wrong. I've watched many Hallmark movies. I I love Hallmark movies. I'll admit to you. Uh, But you ever notice that they seem to all take place in small towns that are perfectly manicured? Uh, They seem to always involve some type of bakery or small business that is in trouble. But we know it'll be all right in the end. Uh, The girl and guy always fall in love and live happily ever after. There is always the perfect amount of snow and holiday cheer and Christmas cookies. Everyone has perfectly white teeth and beautiful. Uh, There's always just the right amount of conflict. Not enough to put us off, but enough to keep us interested. But the conflict is always resolved by the end of it. There aren't any loose ends by the end of the movie. It leaves you satisfied, doesn't it? Now, some of you guys may be balking, saying, I don't watch Hallmark movies. I get it. But it's the same with car shows. I love car shows. I love to watch car shows on television where they bring in an old car, a junker, and then they spend with the the magic of television in 30 minutes. They take this car from a junker to this perfect, beautiful car at the end. And you get to see the drama and the work they do to completely redo the car. And at the end of the the show, they have the big reveal to the owner and and they're just blown away by what they've done uh, with the car. And it's amazing. We all love the big reveal, don't we? We, it, it leaves us satisfied. For the whole sh- show, you're, you're seeing this car being worked on, and you don't get to see the whole car until the big reveal. And then it's at the big reveal. There's something satisfying about that, isn't there? Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about. It's the same also for uh, shows like Fixer Upper. Uh, you all know the show Fixer Upper, uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines. Waco, Texas. In fact, we've spent part of our vacation in Waco going to their store, which is more like an empire now. It's amazing. But at the beginning of the show, you know, uh, those of you who have never seen it, they, they buy the old house, run down, and then through the magic of television in an hour, they redo this house. And by the end of it, you are just blown away. And at the end of it, they have the big reveal. And, and I don't, if you've seen the show, they have these two giant screens. And on the screen are, are a picture of what the house looked like. And then they pull back the screen and they reveal the new home. There's something satisfying about the big reveal. Uh, you know, my wife and I have commented, we'd let Chip and Joanna Gaines uh, redo our home and we wouldn't even care what they did, you know. <laughs> but the Hallmark movies, car shows, fixer-upper shows, they're all the same. We love the reveal. We love the satisfaction of everything ending up perfectly. Don't you wish that life worked out that way? More often than not, though, life does not end up the way we foresee. And often the hope that we have is dashed by the reality of life. But we have spent this Advent season looking at the hope that is revealed by God. And specifically, we've been looking at the prophecies of the Old Testament that pointed to the future hope of a Messiah that would come to save the world. Advent is a season of hope. Not the Hallmark movie, car show, fixer-upper hope that we see on television, but the hard-fought hope that is born out of pain and loss and brokenness. But in this hope, we are ultimately satisfied. That's what we're looking at today. Hope 
satisfies. Too often, though, we put our hopes into having the the perfect Christmas with, with family and friends and no arguments and the perfect Christmas meal with the best behaved children and and no drunk uncles. Uh, But how often does that happen? But when it does, though, we should thank God for it. When we have those perfect Christmases, we should praise God and we should thank him because more often than not, it doesn't happen. We're often are disappointed at Christmas because our expectations don't line up with the reality of life. We aren't satisfied. And the reason is, is because we have placed our hopes in the wrong things. But hope is born at Christmas if we will see the real hope that we have. And this morning, we're going to take a journey to Bethlehem to see this hope that we have received. I hope you're ready. Let's look again at the prophet Micah. This prophet as he reveals the hope that is to come in the future. It's a text that we often read at Christmas time. Because it reveals the hope of a future king. I want to read it again. Here we go. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephratath, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. It's a beautiful prophecy. It's a great prophecy that we have. God had given Micah a message. Actually, the prophet had received three messages. Uh, Just like the other uh, prophets of the Old Testament, Micah was warning the people to return back to God. He was warning Israel and Judah that God's judgment was coming if they did not repent and turn back to God. He was calling them to faithfully worship God alone, to not turn to idols. He was calling them to obedience to the covenant that God had given them. But just as the other prophets lamented, the people refused to obey He pleaded with the the leaders to look after the poor and those who were downtrodden, the helpless. But the leaders were concerned with other things. So here is the outline of Micah, this small little prophet. Message one, judgment is coming. Message two, a deliverer is coming. Message three, trust the Lord now. It's kind of the whole Bible right there. Message one, judgment is coming. Message two, a deliverer is coming. Message three, trust the Lord now. We have this image. And in these three messages, there's this alternating pattern of judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. Did I get them all? I think there's one more. Judgment and hope. This is the pattern we see throughout Micah. Where have we heard this before? Well, just about every other prophecy in the Old Testament. As I said last week, we have these two attributes of God that we have to hold together. Justice and love. God's justice, through his judgment, will overcome evil. But God's love will save us. We have hope. 
Throughout the Bible, we have this thread of hope that will not be broken. Even in the most desperate and vile times, there's a thread of hope. Even in the darkest of nights, God's hope is revealed if we can see it. And here in chapter 5 of Micah, we see this incredible prophecy of hope that is born out of a small town called Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephratoth, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Now you might be wondering, why is it called Bethlehem of Ephratoth? That's a good question. The reason was to distinguish it from another community that was in Galilee called Bethlehem. So which Bethlehem are we talking about? Bethlehem by Jerusalem or Bethlehem in, uh, by, in Galilee? This is the Bethlehem by Jerusalem. And that's just the reason why they have that. It was part of that. But why this city, this place? Bethlehem is mentioned 52 times in the Bible. It's only a small town, probably no more than 200 people in the whole city. It's a rural community about six miles south of Jerusalem. It's the place where the patriarch Jacob buried his wife Rachel in the book of Genesis. Bethlehem is also the place where Ruth gathered grain to support her and her mother-in-law Naomi. And it's the place where Ruth met and married her future husband Boaz. The whole story of Ruth is such a, a beautiful picture of redemption and faithfulness and love. It was also the home of a man named Jesse. You remember the story? Remember that the prophet Samuel had been given a message from God that one of Jesse's sons was to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel went to Jesse with the purpose of anointing one of his sons to be king. And he paraded in front of Samuel his first seven sons. But God didn't choose any of them. Rather, he chose the youngest, the one that Jesse didn't even deem important enough to bring before Samuel. And when the prophet asked, is this all your sons? Uh, Jesse replied, there's one more, but he's out taking care of the sheep. And you remember who that son was, of course, David. The one who would one day slay the giant Goliath. The one that was a man after God's own heart. This is the Bethlehem that is mentioned here in Micah. If you'll go back to the verse. This is that Bethlehem. This is where our hope lies. Indeed, as I've told you before, Bethlehem itself means house of bread. And I think that's appropriate for us. This is the place where the bread of life will be born. This is the reason why it's Bethlehem, the place of promise, the house of bread, the place where the hungry can find bread, the bread of life, the place where we can be satisfied. Because I believe hope indeed satisfies. Now from the prophet Micah, if we fast forward about 750 years, we aren't in Bethlehem right now, but in another small town. And this time we are up in Galilee in a place called Nazareth. And we zoom in on the young woman, Miriam, who we know as Mary. Now when God announced to Mary that she was pregnant and that she was going to have a son, I don't think she dreamed that she'd be giving birth in Bethlehem. She thought she'd be giving birth in Nazareth. 
but the powers that be had other ideas. Of course, we know that God was in control, but that didn't stop Caesar Augustus from doing all he could to exert his control. And we read these words in Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. We have to remember that Israel was under foreign occupation. They were controlled by Rome. Now, again, I think I've told you all that before, but my whole life I knew that here, but it wasn't until we actually went to Israel and saw the Roman influence in the ancient cities, the columns, the baths, the Colosseums. That's when it really sunk in. Oh, they lived under Roman control, and you could see it everywhere. And I thought, what would it be like to be under the control of outside forces. The people prayed for deliverance and redemption. And we know from many historical sources that uh, Augustus, he wasn't the nicest of emperors, nor was humility one of his uh, main traits. Uh, In fact, his idea of peace and liberty and security and victory were all attributes that he attributed to himself. He said, this is who I am. I am a man of peace and liberty and security and victory. That's who I am. He allowed himself to be called the son of God. He was called a savior. And he was revered as one who brought peace to all the world. But we understand when Augustus says he is a man of peace, that meant as long as you agree with me, there's peace. You disagree with me, you die. We'll have peace. It's just that simple. That's the the man, Augustus Caesar. But what a contrast there is between Caesar and in Luke's gospel, the idea of who a son of God is. There's a contrast between who really is a savior and who actually brings peace, God's peace, God's salvation, God's liberty, his security, God's victory. They don't come from Rome. They come from Bethlehem. There's something satisfying to me about salvation coming from an insignificant time and place. There's something satisfying about Bethlehem. Rome was exerting its power and control, but ultimately it didn't have control. Not on a cosmic level, but the people, they understood Rome's control every day because they felt it. They saw its influence. They wielded their control. But the people had hope, hope that one day God would send a Messiah Hope that would someday be revealed in Bethlehem. But the Emperor Augustus wanted to flaunt his control, so he called a census. This census that the people had to take was a reminder that they were not in control. The purpose of the census was for taxes, uh, for military service, a reminder that the emperor demanded tribute and loyalty that was in opposition to God. So, Joseph, everybody, had to go to their hometown to be registered for the census. And Joseph, who was engaged to marry, was from Bethlehem. His family had been from Bethlehem, so that's why they had to go down to Bethlehem. But there's so much going on in these two verses right here. More than just location and date stamps. But think about it. How should we react to this sentence? See, that's the hard part. We can just read scripture sometimes and we forget the significance of it because we live in a different time and place. 
We live in 21st century America, which is very different from first century Palestine. But let me read it again. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. One of the things that I think is important for us as we read scripture is to ask God to really help us to understand what it means. I want us to get a sense of what that would mean for us today. Just imagine if we lived in a very different world, in a time of war where war isn't over there, but war is here. Imagine that our country was invaded by another country and taken over and our government was just a puppet government. How would you feel about a new foreign government taking a census and a registration? How would you feel about bringing a child into that world? If that were the case today, then these verses would invoke strong emotions. They would be overwhelming. Emotions of fear and anger and rebellion. They would remind us that we're not in power, but that forces beyond our control have taken over. It would evoke images of our low status and our inability to do anything about it. These two verses in Luke aren't just time and location details, but references of wealth and power and status and the fact that we don't got it. So Joseph and Mary, along with the rest of the world, are subordinates to this power. They're nobodies in comparison to Rome. But isn't that the story of how God works throughout the Bible? Isn't that what makes this so amazing? It's not Rome that will save us, even though Rome boasts of having a savior named Caesar. Not Rome, but Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephratath, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel. I don't know about you, but that brings me great satisfaction. That was the, the big reveal that the people had been waiting for. For we see in this small town a child will be born to poor, humble parents. This is the continuation of the story of God from the beginning of time. God had acted and is acting in history to save us, even now, even in this moment, to show us what true power is, what true love is. The birth of Jesus is a lesson in God's faithfulness and also reveals to us the heart and character of God. It reminds us the key values of life are life itself, not all the pomp and circumstance and the things that surround us. Our hope is revealed in Bethlehem. Our hope is revealed in Jesus. That should bring us satisfaction this Christmas in spite of everything else that goes on around us. Our hope is revealed in Bethlehem. Let us pray. How I thank you, Lord, for this hope. That your hope in Jesus satisfies. There's something about a baby that brings hope. There's something about a child that fills us with joy. Fill us, O oh God, this day we pray. Amen.